is Simply Focus with Elvis Chani and Dominic Gilda for live enjoyment. Do you like the Simply Focus podcast? Well, help Elfie and Dominic spread the word. Give the Simply Focus podcast an excellent rating on iTunes and Google Play and other platforms. Then don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and share your thoughts and inspirations with others by commenting at www.sfontour.com/simplyfocuspodcast. Then go to this episode. Please welcome your hosts, Elfie Cherney and Dominic Godat. We're here today in Chicago after a wonderful week almost in Milwaukee where we traced the history of the solution focus approach and now we are in Chicago here with Scott Miller today. Hi Scott. Hi. It's been so great that we can meet you. We had two busy schedules and we're happy that we can talk to you about deliberate practice and also your name was mentioned so many times in our travels. So we're happy that we can meet you and see what fascinated you back then and what still fascinates you and what your main topic right now is and how that might be useful for solution folks practitioners. So Scott, you were involved with Solution Focus quite at the beginning. You right. wrote a book with Insu. I did. You wrote two other books on Solution Focus. You published a lot of articles. And I did. Are traveling a lot. We're happy to catch you here in Chicago today. I'm happy to be part of this. I'm excited to hear about your journey traveling across the United States and Canada and Europe and everything else. So I'm grateful that you'd spend the time with me. Yes, so Scott, what fascinates you with solution focus? The truth is I really haven't been involved with solution focus thinking for some time now. I can tell you at the beginning back in the early 80s when I was a graduate student, I met a professor and a supervisor whose name was Lynn Johnson and Lynn had been reading Keys to Solution and he made that part of our study group. And it's in that way that I started to hear about solution-focused therapy. What I liked about Lynn and also about solution-focused was that they gave me some direction and some guidance about what to actually do during a visit with clients. Much of what I was getting in school was vague and not very helpful in terms of knowing how to work. And I've always been an anxious therapist. I'm not someone who it comes naturally to. I've had to really work at feeling comfortable in the room and knowing what to do with clients. And solution-focused really spelled it out very clearly. Or at least I thought. And so that's where it really started with me, first with Keys, and then, of course, through the rest of the books. And you even moved to Milwaukee and worked with Insu and Steve at the BFTC? I did. I moved there in the summer, I believe, of 1988. And I was finishing up a postdoc out in California. I wrote to Insu and let her know that I was going to Omaha, Nebraska to potentially take a position with Bill O'Hanlon and Pat Hudson. Insu wrote me a letter back and said, make sure you come and see us after you meet with Bill and Pat. And when I did, there really wasn't much to compare. I would be a clinician and get good supervision at the Hudson Center. I was going to get a real learning environment where people were experimenting with what to do in the room with clients at BFTC. And so I packed up my stuff after I finished my postdoc and I moved to Milwaukee. It was a big shock, I have to say. In what sense? Well, Milwaukee is not Palm Springs to begin with. It was at the time in particular a Rust Belt area. Factories were closing down. Homes were old. There is a famous lead into a television show that was on during the 70s here called All in the Family. And it shows all these row houses 
and they're broken down. So I was coming from one of the most beautiful places in the country and coming into a place that looked pretty run down, dilapidated and, and tired. And of course, when I first went to BFTC, I expected, given the writing, that my imagination would be equivalent to what the center looked like. And I have to say, they were very humble digs. It wasn't anything fancy. It was in the bottom floor of a building that was rented on Capitol Drive. And it was pretty simple and basic, but lots of mirrors and lots of energy. Yeah. And you stayed there for quite some time. I was so... there for almost five years. Yeah. So what fascinated you back then? What made you stay for five years? Well, let me tell you a story about the first time I really met Steve, because I'd met Insu at a mutual friend's home. Insu was out in Denver doing a workshop. I happened to be staying at uh, Yvonne Dolan and Charlie Johnson's home. And Insu was staying there as well. We had some long walks and long talks. It was a very interesting meeting. I felt very privileged to have the time to chat with her when everybody else was limited to her workshop dialogue. In any event, I had moved out to Milwaukee. I walked into BFTC my very first day. I walked past Dolores, who was the administrative assistant who ran the front end of the clinic. And Steve came walking around the corner and in characteristic steep fashion, he didn't say very much, but he had a paper in his hands. And after we did very brief introductions, he says, please read this and get back to me. And so I took the paper and overnight I felt a great deal of responsibility. I also wondered really, what could I say? I'm going to comment on a paper written by Steve DeShazer, but I did. I marked up things in pencil. I gave it back to him the next day. By the end of that day, he got back to me with a second edition of the paper and asking me, did I think that his understanding of my comments were reflected in his revisions? It was a pretty amazing experience. Wow. And that's the kind of energy that was there at the time I was there. Very open, interested, experimental. Of course, there was a focus. The focus was on focused solution development rather than understanding the problem or even the process of therapy so much as really trying to help people develop more of a solution to their particular concerns that brought them in. And you say that this work back then or the way you all worked there really has a lot to do with the work you do today as you say as an extension from the work back then. In what respect? Well, the story with Steve, for me, I think illustrates the way that my professional relationships work. I don't have any finished ideas. All ideas are in the process. They're evolving. And Steve asked for feedback. I gave him open and honest feedback, and it was a fairly rewarding experience. So that part of my work is central to what we're doing right now, and that is the use of feedback to improve the quality and the outcome of treatment services. We've made that a much more formal process, Asking clients at each visit to complete simple tools about the experience they've had and the progress that they make over time. We've actually turned that into a set of algorithms that can predict the outcome if clinicians follow them. And we can demonstrate that doing so improves outcomes. Clients who have therapists who use the measures are two and a half times more likely to experience measurable improvement than those who don't. So I think that's a big part of it. I think the second part for me is that we were constantly refining there wasn't really a so-called solution-focused therapy in the form of a noun. Solution-focused was much more of a verb, and we were interested in exploring all of those avenues, anything that we could do. And so much of what we did was highly variable based on the people that were coming in to see us, and only later did it turn into a standardized way of working. So there was not an approach back then, but just kind of in the making, in the doing, in the learning, and then only later became 
became a noun and approach. I think that tools that stuff like. started to happen when you had to teach what it was we were doing. So people were coming, sitting behind our mirror, and they would ask, well, what, what the hell are you doing here? Why are you asking some questions or not? Many of the things that became quite well known and famous, I think, were accidental. Simple observing of Insu or Steve or Jane Kashnig or Joanne Solomon or Larry Hopwood working, and then seeing if anything could be learned from that process. We'd reflect on it. It would infect the team. We'd all begin trying variations of the same thing and in that way, and then we're having to turn that into something that we taught people. I think there was a lot of careful observation and then trying to replicate that. And making it accessible for other people as well. And to that was the critical component. Making it accessible meant that we had to begin to describe to others what we did. The danger in all of that is that the spirit or what drives the experience of the team working together kind of dies. It becomes standardized. So can you maybe tell a little bit of what brought you on this journey where you're on right now with the mm. deliberate practice? So my experience of watching Stephen Insu work, and in particular Insu, is that her work was much more varied than the surviving videos would allow you to believe. If you dig deep into the archives, and my garage is full of such videotapes, and audio tapes for that matter, and audio tapes of discussions about sessions, there was a great deal of variability in the work. Only later did it coalesce around a certain process. So for me, the minute that that happened, then something essential was lost in the experience, this attitude of discovery. And we were always at the same time trying to simplify. Well, here's what happened. Two researchers came in, one from Texas Women's University and the other from Calvin College, and they followed up on our clients. And what their question was is, were we effective? And what they found was, I think, really shocking. And what they found was, number one, that what we were doing is in the work at BFTC, at least by asking our clients was working, that there wasn't any question about that. The challenging notion was that it wasn't working any better than anything else. So to a team that had made its name on the word brief therapy, it didn't seem to be any briefer than anything else. There were also scads of promises about it leading to more single session cures, and it didn't do that either. If that's the case, if the outcomes are roughly the same, then you have to think that either solution-focused works in entirely unique ways and different from other treatment approaches, or it works in entirely the same way. One sends you in search of what's unique about solution-focused work. One sends you in search of factors that unify different treatment approaches that might lead to common principles. And for me, that's where the data led me. There wasn't anything, in my opinion, that was super unique about the work that we were doing. And I wanted to find out, given the way I am and that I'm an anxious therapist and I want to know what to do and, and do it for the right reasons, we began looking for commonalities between treatment models. Lo and behold, there's a giant body of research that's existed from the actually the late 30s that's investigated the commonalities between treatment models. They may put those commonalities to work in different ways, much the same way that DNA is expressed in the diversity that we see on planet Earth. But the, discovering that common thread, the DNA of effective clinical work, was what I really became interested in. And you now say that those therapists or those, in our terms, maybe also solution-focused practitioners in other fields are most effective who reflect their practice and mm. really not just follow guidelines, but really reflect, learn from feedback. 
Mm. How does that work? How yeah. can they do that? Yeah, there's a bit of a history to this. Let me just briefly say that we initially started thinking that we would try to explore these common factors and that this would be able to provide a unifying language that therapists could operationalize in different ways depending on who walked in the door. The truth is, however, that that was an utter failure. And the reason that's a failure is why would you learn what we were teaching you if what you already did works as good as everything else? Think of it logically. This we discovered only after writing two books on the subject. So then we thought, well, maybe we can't figure out how to do therapy reliably the best way. So we'll just measure therapy. We developed a couple of simple tools. We began measuring outcomes. When we did that, we discovered certain therapists consistently achieve better outcomes than others. We were right back to the same puzzle we'd had at the beginning. Why? Why is it that certain therapists are more effective than than other clinicians? Turned out it wasn't about their experience. It wasn't about their treatment approach. It wasn't about how many years of training they'd had. It turns out that what separates the best from the rest is how much time they spend in an activity called deliberate practice. Deliberate practice means identifying the edge of your realm of reliable performance. You can't get better by copying what I do or by me teaching you general lessons. You have to first map your performance and figure out when does what you do with your clients not help. And how do I do that? You're going to have to measure to begin with. You're going to have to measure and find out which clients under which circumstances are you less likely to engage, keep in care long enough to have exert an influence, and then ultimately help. That first step is really beginning to get a picture of where you're effective and where you're not. And how do people do that in practice? Do they let their clients fill out forms or do they talk to them or how does that work in practice? Well, of course, the top clinicians that we interviewed typically got that way without a set of measurement tools. Interestingly enough, they're often the first people to embrace those particular tools. Any information that could be helpful in terms of improving their practice, they're going to embrace that. For the rest of us, though, we probably do need to use some kind of routine outcome measure. Our team publishes and made available since 1999 two very simple tools, one to measure progress called the outcome rating scale, the second to measure the quality of the client's engagement in in care called the session rating scale. Those we suggest therapists administer each and every time. That data can then be aggregated, sliced and diced in different ways to look more carefully at our clinical practice, the people that we help, the people that we don't help, the sessions that are helpful and the ones that are less helpful. Well, you can get them on my website at scottdmiller.com. So we'll put that in our resource section of the podcast. You'll find everything there. Cool. That's great. And how do they learn now? So they have this data. Hmm. How do they learn what to do differently next time? Well, after you've identified your errors in some instances, the information is very logical or the conclusions are very logical. Let's say, for example, that you notice that with female clients, that your outcomes are a quarter to a half a standard deviation less than your average or overall outcomes or your outcomes with men or with other clients. In that particular case, you would want to focus on establishing better connections and more effective results with those particular clients, paying more attention to it, reflecting on what might be the difference. That's a first step. Some of these things seem logical and are self-evident. Second step, though, generally is to get a coach. And almost all people who are top performers have a coach, somebody who is exceptionally knowledgeable about a very small area of practice that you want to improve upon. Getting the coach who can identify your weakness 
weaknesses, help you develop exercises that you can engage in outside of clinical work, apply to your clients, look at the feedback, refine those exercises and try again. So it's really a trial and error process with a constant research method to really see what works better than something else. That's right. Yeah. I mean, essentially you're doing successive refinement of your practice. Now, this is something that all therapists try to do. They think they do it. But when we look at the outcomes, therapist outcomes actually don't improve with time and experience. It doesn't matter the style of therapy you embrace. When we look across clinicians, large-scale studies show that they don't. What we do know, however, is that when therapists begin to use these measurement tools, identify those small errors, get a coach that can help you develop exercises for that particular area or weakness in your practice, the therapist outcomes begin slowly to improve. I'm asking myself, how could that be transformed to the many other fields where solution focus is used like schools for example social work in our leadership area or just in other areas of life well what i can say is that therapists around the world are using the tools so we have in the database at the present time close to a million and a half completed cases of care in services that are wide and diverse from case management to residential facilities across all problem types and they've put into practice this very simple process of measuring their results and getting feedback on an ongoing basis looking for those particular shortcomings in terms of applying those ideas across different settings i think the principles of deliberate practice are the same in order to improve you have to understand and have an accurate picture of your baseline performance level. This can't be something that you think of because therapists are prone to a positive outcome bias. The average therapist overestimates their effectiveness by close to 65%. That means we look at treatment through rose-colored glasses. So you do have to have something that can help you establish that baseline and also know when you're helping, when you're not. I suppose you could do that in a leadership context. I can tell you that this is the nature of practice that they do with surgeons, with computer programmers, and with pilots. It's just that the field of psychotherapy has been rather late to the game. Now, something that psychotherapists do and that I think is really particularly important about solution-focused therapy, and I hope this won't sound like condescending or negative, solution-focused therapy has a relatively straightforward, well-defined process. Given that, it's fairly easy to learn the steps of solution-focused, they say compared to psychoanalytic therapy where the process is much more vague etc that's going to be harder to learn to do and execute in other words I can train somebody to do solution focused therapy have experts in that method watch them and they can all agree in a relatively efficient fashion that's a good thing to do because it gives us a standard against which to compare anytime you make variations in your performance so you do your standard therapeutic process and you measure the results if what you're doing is not engaging that particular client you can make small variations from from the known standard that you usually use in your practice and know exactly what that variation was. It might be the addition of complements. It might be a more structured homework assignment at the end or 
not giving homework assignments at the end. It might be a different way of greeting the client in the process since those first 10 minutes in the clinical hour are really important for both establishing the nature of the working relationship and the themes that will play out over the course of the contact with a particular client. So having this standard and then change one thing and see what happens and then right. reflect on that and maybe change another thing, see what happens there, reflect on that as a deliberate practice. That's exactly right. And I think, again, this is one thing that's, again, nice about having a community. So the solution focus community is pretty strong. It can support you in knowing when you're on track with the solution focus methodology. At the same time, in order to move beyond that, to get better, to engage more clients, I'm probably going to have to introduce small variations. Things which therapists do naturally, but they might not do reflectively so that they know they're making these particular variations. Let's contrast that with other communities. The average therapist identifies about 50% of them say, I'm eclectic. When you ask them, what does that mean? They can't articulate very well what that means, how they make clinical decisions. Therapists in a solution-focused way have very clear decision-making process. Client says this, we go this particular way. They say something else and we use a different homework task in that particular case. If I'm an eclectic therapist, I'm often looking for the next new thing to help me out, but I'm not doing it in an organized, methodical way. Then that's, of course, not likely to lead to much improvement in my overall outcomes with time. And much more difficult to realize what it was that made it better or maybe worse. The essential thing. Absolutely. You're listening to the Simply Focus podcast with Alfie Cherney and Dominic Godat, your podcast for a life in joy and ease. Yeah, it's very close to what we've been thinking about for now many months about how can we see solution focus not only as a set of assumptions and practices, but how can we really go back to this initial spirit of learning, of deliberately trying out, getting feedback from our clients, and then also learn from that and develop solution focus. You said it, if you see solution focus as a noun, then it's very stable mm. with all the advantages you mentioned. Mm. And also all the disadvantages, like improvement of the approach. This has been very interesting to think about for the two of us lately. Hmm. There's a story, an old Buddhist story that I, I like a lot, and I'm going to certainly crucify this story as I tell it. There are two monks, they come up to a river that's overflowing its banks. And the older monk says to the younger monk, let's build a raft. And they build a raft, they float across. The younger monk begins to put the raft on his back. And the older monk says, what are you doing? He says, well, in case we ever run into a flood again, the older monk says, set the raft down. If we need one, we'll build something else. For me, we often get stuck carrying around the raft. The raft for me are all these questions that became an obsession with solution-focused at the end of my tenure. I was never interested in that. I was never interested in the miracle question, which for me was discovered by accident, really. It was an accommodation of the client at the moment. Let me say that again. That question emerged out of Insu's accommodation of a client in the moment. Now, sitting behind the mirror, it looked like a really great idea. And then pretty soon all of us were asking people about miracles. But the principle involved was find out what moves people. Find out what's important to them. Find out where they want to go. That seemed to be the principle. And it turned into a raft in some ways, at least in the beginning stages. And still this way of discovering the miracle question, if you must say it like that, is very much in this process of learning and then deliberately trying it out. And then the question is, how do we learn beyond that? Yeah. How do we keep on learning? Right. Yeah, I think there for me comes this difference between creating habits and staying curious about what we do and how we learn 
learn and how we can learn from our be it clients or conversation partners employees other people in our organizations mm. and keep that going and you mentioned earlier that it needs this baseline at the beginning yes i'm still thinking what could be this baseline for a leader for instance do you have maybe any thoughts about that <laughs> i know you're working with therapists yeah so. maybe you can have a clear situation a leader leading a meeting for example mm. so the question for me would be how can i with the deliberate practice become a better leader in a meeting for instance right so i don't think there's anything that you can do to become a better leader in the moment i think we have to gather enough data to even find out if the way you lead that meeting is problematic so the first thing you would have to do is specify what the outcome is that we are searching for how will we know that somebody is a good leader are we defining that as a process variable what they do from moment to moment with people in a meeting are we talking about what happens after the meeting that staff actually go to their desks and do more productive work that they achieve better sales or that they are less demoralized and take fewer sick days whatever that might be the outcome has to be specified first then we have to measure the baseline of that does the leader's behavior lead to those outcomes or what outcomes does the leader's behavior lead to the contribution of any particular meeting i'm going to guess is going to be relatively small in contrast to all the other factors that can affect those particular outcomes so i'm going to look for more inputs than just the leading a meeting that might lead to the outputs or the outcomes that i'm looking for now all this sounds very 20,000 foot i'm not sure it's even helping when you talked about learning earlier what i hear most people talk about when they talk about learning is doing not learning so tell me what to do what questions should i ask in the meeting how should i run the meeting that's not learning that's that's doing so i think first i have to carefully describe the outcomes that we're looking for i have to measure those outcomes and then look for variation in those outcomes to figure where does the leader contribute where don't they when do the outcomes fall flat etc to identify learning opportunities we were looking at cases behind the mirror at bftc specifically this is what i think is in part curious for me solution focus wasn't about a focus on the positive it wasn't even necessarily a focus on what works we were often examining and tortured by what wasn't working why wasn't this particular interview going well why weren't these clients engaged by us what could we do in the visit that might change that and making systematic variations in what we were doing to see did that resolve the issue or concern to me what you said is really very inspiring as i think that it's so important even in a meeting yeah, to ask ourselves what should the outcome be of mm. this meeting mm. and i think people often stay in the question where what should happen here mm. but that's mostly not the important thing why do we do a meeting because we want to make a difference for something in our organization whatever that mm. might be so i think to highlight the importance of really asking well what outcome it is that we want to have and how we would notice or see that we are a better leader more effective or whatever so, yeah so let me just say for example if you apply what we know from psychotherapy because i am no expert in the leadership literature i am not but if you apply the same findings from the therapy literature no one therapy session or way of doing a therapy session is any better in general than any other so you can pick your poison whichever way you want to run that 
that particular meeting. What I think that means in the long run is, are people engaged by what you do during any particular visit? So I don't care if you're solution focused or CBT, did it mean anything to the person you were working with? Were they engaged? I sit in tons of meetings and I have to tell you, I find myself losing consciousness (laughs) fairly quickly. So I can imagine that some of the leadership material must say that meetings meet some point of diminishing returns where it just doesn't matter how long you spend or what way you work or how many meetings you have, it just doesn't contribute to the bottom line. For me, I'd have to identify those particular outputs and I'd really want to know, are the people engaged by what we've done? Are they attentive? Did it stimulate them? Did it give them ideas? That might also lead to the question, do we even need those meetings? Of course. Yeah. If we leave the setting of the meeting, Hmm. uh, one of the questions that I have is there are different ways of looking at outcome. Is it a good outcome of the meeting that people did something in the meeting? Is it a good outcome that people do something later in the meeting, after meeting? Or is it a good outcome that we are still in the business and uh, number one in 10 years? What is the outcome we're looking for? How do you deal with that? What is a good therapy outcome? What is it effective? It's great. And I think you've asked the right question. If that's the question we were struggling with in business leadership meetings, I think it would be great. What the hell are we doing here? What's the whole purpose of this? Why are we having this meeting? In psychotherapy, there's been a big debate that's gone on for a hundred years. And that is, is the outcome a reduction or elimination of symptoms or a diagnosis, or is it enhancing well-being? The curious thing, most of the efforts, as you well know, have been focused on symptom reduction or elimination of a particular diagnosis. Our own work has been focused on improving well-being. And let me give you a couple of reasons for that. First off, most people do not go to see a therapist when they have symptoms. They go when their symptoms interrupt their functioning. So I can be a big drinker, but as long as my partner's not complaining and my job is saying it's okay, I can keep drinking. No need to go somewhere. No need to go somewhere. Now, that's true in the main. It's not true for everybody. But most people do not go when they develop. And there are lots of people who hear voices. Lots. Lots more than we think. But most don't go for therapy and they don't need to because the voices don't interrupt their compassionate relationship with their kids and partner. They don't keep them from going to work and paying their taxes like everyone else. So are voices a problem that need to be eliminated? No. As soon as those things begin to affect well-being, though, then people are truly troubled and they often are reaching out for help to their partner, to their family, their employer, to their physician, and last but not least, their their therapist. So we've argued that well-being is the thing that should be measured. It also turns out that this is the broader meaning of healing. Healing isn't about cure. Healing is about restoring to wholeness so that people have a much more broad ability to interact and live in their world, their individual world, their relational world, their social world. So for me, that's what we've been measuring. And that's, I think, what the literature supports therapy mostly does. It's okay at symptom reduction, but it really does help people return to functioning. So at least in psychotherapy, I think that's the thing to be to be measuring. And what's the time horizon? Is it well-being a week after the session or is it well-being a year or 20 years from now? Because change is happening all the time. And I always ask myself, also when I read literature about development of solution focus, it's on one hand about reduction of sessions, but it's not yet well-being. Hmm. And the other thing is about well-being. If I measure the outcome a week after the session might be completely different than a day after the session hmm. or two weeks after the 
the session because other things might happen. So how do you deal with that issue? What is well, again, I think this is the right question to be asking. The right question asks is when should change be taking place? This is a question that one of the field's leading researchers, Ken Howard, was asking back in the 1980s when our field was obsessed with which method to use for which diagnosis and long-term therapy was the only way to work. Ken was saying, how do clients experience benefit from services when they do? And what he found back in 1986 was that 35 to 65% experienced measurable improvement within the first eight to 10 weeks of care. Now, many people took that to mean we should do brief therapy. That's not what that means. What that means is that if your client is not experiencing a benefit by eight to 10 weeks, the chances of you helping them work in your way are no longer going up. They're going down. And it's probably a good time for some innovative thinking and doing something different in the session. That's the idea of it. I began to say as a joke that therapy should be brief when it's not working. Then it should be as brief as bloody possible. That therapist should get away from that client as soon as they can. What's the time window for that? Eight to 12 weeks. And sometimes with clients who are much more severely distressed a bit longer. So the window is actually fairly narrow from becoming someone who intervenes in the client's life versus someone who becomes a part of their life and indistinguishable from the problems that they have. Wow. <laughs> it's such an energizing conversation. So, well, still time to come to an end. So, Scott, if there is one thing you think people should really take away from our conversation and maybe also one thing that was important for you and your journey and you want to give to solution-focused practitioners, what would that be? I honestly have no advice for how people should do their work and live their lives. I really have a challenge enough just managing my own life. But I can tell you where my interests have taken me. We help people. It's amazing what therapists do. Talking to therapists makes me feel hopeful. I'm serious about that. They work with everyone who walks through their door. They try damned hard. And they're continuously pushing themselves. Most. There's always an exception or two. But most of the people I meet, they're amazing people. They really are amazing. Where I'm at right now and what's a bit discouraging to me is that most of the people who could benefit from seeing us actively choose not to go. So even when governments invest millions of dollars in increasing access, only about 15% of the people who are distressed enough that it affects their functioning eventually make it into our office. It's not about ignorance. It's not about stigma. It's not about that I don't know how to get to a therapist's office or I'm unaware. It's because they don't see us as fitting within what they need and how they think about the world. And so for me, it's about expanding this lens. Right now, in our field, we have a very limited narrative about what helps people. We think change people's thinking, change people's behaving, change people's emotions, change their brain chemistry. These are sort of the dominant narratives and all the models flow from there. But there are a lot of clients who think differently than that. They lead much more broad lives. They have a sense of connection with something bigger than themselves, something invisible that affects their lives. And that's what I'm interested in exploring. How can we, who have something really wonderful to offer, connect with people who think we don't speak their language. We don't talk to what's meaningful for them. We don't sing their song. Wow, what an important message. So let's come to the challenge of the week. Yeah. Challenge of the week would be, if you think you're effective, why not find out? Download the measures. You can get them for free and begin tracking your outcomes and see, are you effective with all your clients? Is it to the degree that you thought? So we are happy to put that in the resource section of our podcast so that you just can go and download 
everything mm. you need to mm. become more effective. And we are also very curious to hear from you what worked for you. How did the challenge of the week work for you? And also what inspired you with our podcast? So please comment on www.sfontour.com slash Simply Focus Podcast and then go to episode number 36. And we're also asking ourselves, how can we promote this focus on learning, on really deliberately getting feedback and using this feedback to improve our practice, transform to other areas where solution focus is used. So if you have any ideas how you do that, how you could do that, or how we could do that, or other people could do that, please let us know in the comments field of this podcast. And if you have not yet subscribed, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or other platforms. And for all our German-speaking listeners, we also want to share again that we are up to start the third Impulse Conference für Lösungsfokus Führung, die heuer erstmals als Online-Festival stattfindet. So if you're interested in our solution-focused leadership online-festival, go on www.impulskonferenz.com and we are very much looking forward to meet you online starting on the 5th of November. We have 24 interviews with solution-focused leaders who also learn in their practice while doing it. We have videos from Elfie and myself. We have a lot of challenges and many more things that are really Not only fun, but also important to reflect and maybe improve your practice and your leadership life. So we will for sure continue the conversation we had with Scott today during our Impulse Conference. And on our way to Omaha, Nebraska, where we will go to the high school that I attended in 1995-96. Thank you very much, Scott, for having us here with you, for sharing all your insights and your story, which is very inspiring to us. Thank you very much and goodbye. My pleasure. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.